This morning we're going to read a passage of scripture together uh, from the book of Genesis. So if you have a copy of the scriptures you'd like to turn there, we're in Genesis chapter 32. If you're looking at that YouVersion app and watching the live thing that's there, I think the scripture information should be there. I haven't actually looked at it, but as long as I get Cindy the information she needs, it's usually there. So we're in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 31. Here's what the passage says. It says, oh, in just a moment, sorry, let me forewarn us. As we get towards the end, we'll take some moments of silence again uh, to let the passage just simmer a bit. Uh, So as you're growing more and more familiar with, I'll speak. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, The response from us is thanks be to God. And then we'll walk into those moments of silence. Genesis 32, starting in verse 22, it says, During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives his two servant wives and his eleven sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do, you want to, why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. It was Friday, March 13th, I think, that the vision team gathered together in my living room, and we had a conversation about what was coming for Valley, and we decided that we would follow the governor's recommendations, that we shouldn't have worship that Sunday, and it seemed like probably through the rest of the month. So we initially decided that we would spend three weeks not meeting together, As you are well aware, that three weeks became, if I counted right, 17 straight Sundays that we didn't gather in this space, in this place, for some form of worship gathering. 
There's still several of our people that can't be here because of the risks that are involved with regards to COVID and all that that means and some of the safety measures that have been encouraged. We're learning also that as the virus continues to rise in many places that there are churches that are being encouraged once again to not gather together uh, in different places and different spaces and, and we don't know if that may also become the reality here at some point. In this season of separation that we walk through, in this time of, of distancing that we talk about, my mind several times has, has been drawn to thinking about what life must look like for the persecuted church. Throughout the history of our country, here in the States, we have been blessed with this incredible freedom to meet together. Never afraid for what harm it might bring to ourselves or to our family, to our, our way of life, simply because of our faith in Jesus. We've had this freedom to come and to gather, to be here together. For the last several decades, we have seen especially that as the church became, and, and this perhaps is waning right now, but as the church became kind of a dominant culture in our society, we also acquired with that several... Um, societal favors, some benefits of what it meant to be this, this dominant culture. And yet the reality is, if we look back through the history of, church, of, of the church, we see that, that this way of living is kind of an enigma. It's unique, it's rare, it has happened very few times, if any, in the history of the church. In the New Testament, as we read about the church, we don't see that they had the same kind of societal favor that we as the church in the U.S. have had. As we look at the church throughout much of the world, we don't see that they have had that same kind of favor, that same kind of, of blessing that we have experienced. There are some places and some rarities, again, as I mentioned, but that's not the norm for much of the church. And as we've been asked to separate ourselves for the sake of others, my mind has often been drawn to those who have been forced to separate or forced into some kind of hiding because for them, their faith in Jesus, their worshiping together as the church is considered illegal and brings with it incredible difficulties. Now, before I move on, I want to make sure something is really, really, really clear. I am not, I actually do not believe we as the church in the states are somehow being persecuted by being asked not to meet. There are those that believe that. I don't personally believe that that is at all what is going on. And as a matter of fact, I think it's a little bit offensive to compare what we have experienced, to, to say that what we have experienced is somehow the same as what believers are experiencing in China or Somalia or the Middle East or throughout much of the world. When their literal life is on the line, not because they gather alone, but because they have chosen to be followers of Jesus. So I'm not saying that the two things are the same. And I don't want us to make that mistake. I don't want you to make that mistake of hearing that that's what I'm doing. Instead, the, the thoughts that have gone through my mind as I've thought about these two things and the comparison of the two things is, is what it is that we might learn about being faithful in this short-term separation from those who've experienced some version of long-term and often violent separations from the church. 
It's the question for me of what lessons it is that we as the American church can learn from the persecuted. I have some close friends who have done a lot of work among the persecuted world, and they have actually been here at Valley. You might remember, I don't remember how many years ago it was, that my friends Nick and Ruth, that's their pseudonyms that they write by, uh, were here and, and visited with us in worship and shared a bit of their stories. Over the last several weeks, Callie and I have been reading one of the books that Nick wrote. It's called The, the Insanity of God. I've actually made a movie on it also, which is really good. And throughout this book, it has some powerful lessons. And as I've read it and thought about us and the American church and our situation, and really the global church as we're dealing with a pandemic, but, but thinking alongside that of the persecuted church and what life has looked like and does look like for them, there are some powerful lessons that are in the book. This morning, I want to share with you one of those stories that, that I felt like was especially significant as I thought about us and our situation. In the book, Nick writes about a man he calls Dimitri. I don't believe that's probably his real name. I don't even know if he's still alive. But he calls him Dimitri. He was a believer in Russia. He grew up in the church as a young boy. His father had him involved in the church. But as he grew older, he experienced the, the persecution that communism brought with it as they continued to receive more and more pressure as most of the church buildings were destroyed in their country. He watched as a multitude of believers and especially leaders in the church were arrested because of their faith. As he told Nick his story, he told him that as he grew into an adult and he was married and he had kids, the closest church to his house was a three-day walk. So they were only able to make it once or twice a year. And at some point, as he'd grown into adulthood and he was thinking about being a father and his family, he decided that he wanted to begin some weekly gatherings just with his wife and his boys where they would come together and they would share the stories of Scripture together. He wanted this chance to share Scripture with his kids because they weren't getting to go to church and participate in that. And eventually, the sharing of the story of Scriptures also led into the singing of songs of faith together, songs that he had learned in his childhood that he was sharing with his kids. And they would gather for these weekly times of Scripture and song. He lived in a small community and word began to get out what he was doing and others in this neighborhood started asking if they could come and join him. Dimitri had no biblical training. He'd not trained to lead. He, he had no real understanding as to what that looked like so he told them no. He told them no they couldn't come be a part of it. This was just for his family. He wasn't equipped in order to lead others but his lack of training, his lack of being uh, somehow appropriately equipped to do this didn't seem to bother his neighbors and they kept asking and eventually they persuaded him to let them come join what he was doing every week. According to Nick, this group began to grow as word got out among the community and eventually by the time they grew to about 25 people, the authorities noticed what was going on. They heard about this and they came and they threatened Dimitri with being arrested if he continued to host this illegal church in his home. And his immediate response to it was, no, 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 you've misunderstood somehow. This, this isn't a church because I'm not equipped to lead a church. I'm not trained. I'm not a pastor. This isn't a church that is gathering together. Even though there were 25 people coming and hearing the words of Scripture and singing songs together, he says, no, 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 this, this, is, this is not a church. As Nick writes the story, he says that he 
kind of laughed to himself a little bit at Dimitri's unwillingness to consider what he was doing being the church gathering together. But Dimitri continued to meet, and the neighbors continued to come, and according to the story, they continued to grow, and they grew from 25 to about 50, and then to about 75, and they were all crammed together shoulder to shoulder inside Dimitri's little home, and they would come together, and he would share the stories of Scripture, and they would sing songs of worship together. And at about 75 people, the authorities came back again, and one day as they were gathered, they burst open the doors, and they pushed their way in through the crowds that were there, all crammed in tight together. They worked their way through up to Dimitri, and in front of the group, in front of this church that he wouldn't call a church that was meeting, they beat him. And they demanded that if he did not stop meeting, that they would haul him off to prison and arrest him. But he didn't stop. He couldn't stop. So he continued to meet, and the neighbors continued to come somewhat based on some of the miraculous happenings that the Holy Spirit took part of. Some of those stories are in the book, but I don't have time to share all of them this morning. Amazing stories of the Holy Spirit at work. So people continued to come, and they continued to flood in, and about the time they reached 150 people, the authorities came, and they arrested Dimitri, and they took him off to prison. And that's where he spent the next 17 years of his life beaten repeatedly, threatened with death over and over again. They threatened his family. They threatened to arrest his family, to to beat his family, to displace his family. They did absolutely everything they could to persuade, to convince Dimitri to deny his faith. All they wanted him to do was sign a confession, a piece of paper that said that Jesus was not his Savior, that everything that he had been teaching people was a lie. And if he would just sign a piece of paper that they would release him, And he could go home to his family, he could go home to his boys, he could go home to his wife. But he refused. The torture was unimaginable for 17 years. And yet according to the book, as he was being interviewed by my friend Nick, he said this, he said that his isolation from the body of Christ was more difficult than even the physical torture. Again, as I think about us and our separation, obviously it has been minor in comparison to much of what Dimitri experienced, but I suspect that we can resonate at least a bit with the pain of not being able to gather together for worship. I suspect that we can can grasp at least a bit the difficulty of not being able to come and sit with the faithful of not being able to share the stories of Jesus together, to see one another's faces, of not being able to sing songs of worship together with the body of Christ, something we're still not doing. I suspect we can just barely understand some of what he experienced because we would say that this too has been difficult for us. As Nick had conversation with Dimitri, what he really wanted to learn is how was it that Dimitri stayed faithful during this season? How was it that he survived his imprisonment and the torture, the separation from his family and from the body of faith? And as he asked Dimitri this question, Dimitri shared with him two faith practices, two spiritual habits that he had used, that he had practiced, that he had learned in his childhood. 
And he says that without these two practices, that he would not have survived what happened. He told Nick that each morning around dawn, he would stand at the end of his bed. He would stand at attention and he would raise his arms in praise to God and at the top of his lungs, he would sing out the same song of worship every single morning. Nick calls this his heart song to Jesus. There were apparently 1,500 prisoners that were gathered with him, and although I don't know what they were charged with, they seemingly weren't charged with the same kind of crime because according to Dimitri's story, those who were gathered around him would laugh and they would curse and they would yell and make noises and they would shout anything they could to distract him. They would take the metal cups that they had and they would bang them back and forth on the iron bars in order to silence him and stop him. They would throw food that they had at him and sometimes even throwing human weapons at him towards his cell in order to try and get him to stop singing this song. And it never worked. Each morning, he sang. He told Nick that another practice of his is that he was constantly on the lookout for a piece of paper. It didn't matter how big or how large. He was constantly on the lookout for something that he could write on and something he could write with. So he would save little stubs of pencil that he found or little little bits of charcoal that he found and he would take these pieces of paper, again, no matter how big or how small or whether they were straight or torn, and he would begin to write on them, filling every bit of white space, front and back, with every word of Scripture that he could remember, with every story from the Bible that he could recall, with every song of praise that he had learned from his childhood. He would just fill it over and over and over again, writing word on top of word on top of word, and then he would take this piece of paper once it was absolutely full, and he would go to the damp walls of his prison cell because the walls remained damp all the time, and he would take that piece of paper and he would reach as high as he could and he would stick it to the wall as his act of praise to God. And every time it was found, the guards would come and they would rip it down and they would beat him once again. But these were his acts of praise to God. And he suffered a multitude of beatings because of it. Ridicule from both the other prisoners and the guards who were around him. Who was threatened with death over and over and over again. And yet he never stopped. Each morning he sang. Each scrap of paper was filled with scripture year after year after year. Now there's so much more to his story. The book paints an unbelievable picture of who this man is. The movie even demonstrates, illustrates who he was and the faith that he had. And I can tell you that as I read his story, I began to, uh, to tear up as I was laying in my bed reading about this man of faith as inside me welled up such admiration a craving for this kind of faithfulness, a desire to love Jesus with this kind of boldness. And church, I hope that you and I never experience the kind of abuse that he experienced because of his faith in Jesus. But even more than I hope that's true, I hope that we are prepared to survive such a thing. I hope that we are equipped 
to thrive in that type of situation. Because throughout Nick's book, what he finds more than anything is that those who walked through the most devastating forms of persecution found themselves more faithful to Jesus on the other side rather than less so. And yet, I have to tell you that here is my concern. Dimitri survived this unbelievable oppression for 17 years. And many in the church in the States faltered after only 17 weeks of inconvenience because we couldn't meet together in the same building. It is my hope that we can be a people who know and love Jesus like Dimitri did. People who can be faithful no matter how ugly things get. It is my hope that we can love God, that we can know God as deeply as Jacob did, that we can be willing to wrestle with God when it's necessary, that we can be, have the courage to ask the unthinkable as he did in Genesis 32. When this began in March and we were going to walk into this time of separation, this time of distancing, it was my personal belief that this was an incredible opportunity for us at the, as the American church. That we would have this chance, this, this privilege, this opportunity, not because we wanted it or desired it, but that we would have this chance to, to possibly thrive in a far easier separation than the persecuted church suffers every single day. But after just a few weeks, it became clear to me that we weren't prepared to do such a thing. It looked to me as if the church had failed us, as if I had failed you, because we had not equipped our church to thrive without public worship gatherings and trained preachers and skilled musicians. And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. I think all of those things are wonderful. I think they're incredible privileges and blessings that we get to experience. They're wonderful gifts of what we get to experience as part of the American church. And yet, I believe that they're supposed to be a privilege that we get in order to help us practice our faith, not a necessity. As a matter of fact, we've seen the church since the book of Acts, many of them without these kinds of blessings thrive, even though they didn't have these same kinds of opportunities. So the question that has risen for me, how is it, what is it that we can do to be prepared for the possibility of greater difficulties in the future? I don't know if they'll come, but I want us to be prepared in case they do. What is it that we as Valley, that we as the church can do to be more intimately connected with Jesus so that whether we ever experience some kind of overt persecution or not, that we are so deeply connected with Jesus that even in those moments we thrive? How do we come to a place, how do we prepare ourselves to remain faithful even if we don't experience the perks of buildings and musicians and preachers, and yet our faith and our evidence of us as the faithful, as the church, continues to thrive and continues to move forward.
with this in mind and with thinking about this kind of thing, we're going to walk away from this series that was supposed to be two weeks and eventually became four weeks, and we're going to actually kind of go back. We're going to rewind, and we're going to restart a series that we began before we walked into this time of distancing. We're going to go back and think about what it means to strengthen our soul, which was the series that we, that we began. What does it mean for us to strengthen our soul? But we're going to rethink it in the light of what we've walked through and what we continue to walk through in light of these difficulties and thinking about what it means for us to prepare ourselves to be a church that is as faithful as those who have been in the persecuted church. A church that even though they live in difficulty continues to thrive and to grow, continues to give evidence of Jesus at work, moving and stirring. We're going to talk about some spiritual practices and what they look like and how we put them to work so that we can be equipped and we can be prepared and we can walk forward. And then after that, after we talk about what it means for us to have ourselves and our, place, our, our souls in a place that we are that ready, we're actually going to move into a, a next one that will talk about what it means for us to be the kind of missional people that are sharing and showing Jesus with those who are around us. Because we want to be the kind of church that thrives no matter the circumstances or situation that are around us. We want to be the kind of people of faith that walk forward boldly in courage and faith and trust that Jesus is still on his throne and worthy of worship no matter the situation that is around us. It's our hope that we continue to become this kind of people exhibiting this kind of faith. And that'll be our goal over the next several weeks as a church together. Pray with me, would you? Precious Lord Jesus, equip us, empower us, strengthen us, stir in our souls so deeply that we are overwhelmed with love and passion for you. Help us come to a place that we are so deeply in love with you that no matter what happens around us, that evidence continues to show to our family, to our neighbors, to our community, to those who we meet in the public square, to the ends of the earth. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.